Hello, and welcome to the Hearn Him Podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get, get is a podcast. You know, sometimes I read the Bible and it's highly relevant to my life in that moment. I read it and I think, yes, this verse was written for me in this moment. Do you ever feel like that? Absolutely. And then there are other moments, mm, yep. particularly when I'm reading Leviticus. <laughs> When I think this has nothing to do with my life. Do you also feel like that sometimes? I think people probably feel that a bit more when it comes to the Old Testament. Um, And probably some pieces of the New Testament, but probably more of the Old Testament people can relate to that a bit more. In the New Testament, it's probably like the head coverings passage. Yeah. Whoa, I'm just going to skip that because that's probably not relevant to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, there is one Old Testament concept that plays heavily throughout the Old Testament Mm -hmm. that I think we should talk about today, that on the face of it, it doesn't seem like it's relevant at all. But if you kind of dig at it one to two layers deep, it's actually one of the most relevant concepts Hmm. in our life today. Yeah. And it's probably not one we think about often. In our own personal lives, we might see it come out in other people's lives. But I was going to say, we most reference it when we're talking about somebody else. Right. But we usually don't call it out in our own lives. And that is the topic of idolatry. And we read the Old Testament passages that talk about it. And usually it's in a very far removed type of religion where they're worshiping this idol, a very physical thing in front of them. And we can't relate to that because we we don't have shrines and we don't have any physical thing we're sitting down and worshiping and praying to. And so we think, eh, this isn't quite something I need to worry about in my own life. Right, because when I think of idolatry, I think particularly of Old Testament idolatry and paganism. And I think about the wood thing that's covered in gold that somebody carved and then they they dipped it in gold and they light incense to it or they make sacrifices to it. And I think, well, that's not something that I struggle with in the slightest. That's something that I've never done. I've never Mm -hmm. sacrificed anything to a graven image. And so that doesn't seem like it's something that is relevant to me at all. Right. And we probably only put it in the category of that very materialistic sort of way of worshiping an idol. And I've actually had conversations with people who will look at other religions where they still have these little shrines that they have in in their businesses or in their homes. And we usually only correlate that with any form of idolatry. And we don't actually look into our lives and see how is this playing out in my own life, even if it's not a physical wooden object that is covered in gold and I'm worshiping it. Right. Yeah. So when I look at like the commandment from God, like you shall worship me and me alone and you shall not make graven images that you worship. I'm like, check. Got it. That is not a temptation for me. Mm. That is an area of my sanctification. I'm making the sign of the cross. (laughs) It is. The Lord has cared for that in my life and I don't struggle with this at all. Yeah. And as I read the accounts, I'm actually prone to make fun of these people Mm. because I'm like, 
worshiping an idol, a thing that you whittled out of wood and you dipped in gold. Like, come on now, like that's ridiculous. And actually, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, they make fun of the people as well. Right. And I think one passage that particularly stands out to me is Isaiah 44. And I always found this passage just like so humorous. And I think Isaiah was being humorous. He was being facetious <laughs> with it. I think so. Like yeah. he was really like the Bill Burr of his time, like making fun of the things that they did every day. And so um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I thought I'd read a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 9. It says, How foolish are those who manufacture idols? These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are all put to shame. But a fool who makes an idol his own god, it can't help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced along with their craftsmen. These humans who claim that they can make a god, they may stand all together, but they will stand in terror and shame. Skip down to verse 18. It says, Such stupidity and ignorance! Exclamation point. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who has made an idol never stops to reflect. Why, this is just a block of wood! I burned half of it for heat and I used it to bake bread and roast my meat. <laughs> How can the rest of it become a god? Should I bow down and worship this piece of wood? The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts in something that cannot help him at all, yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? Hmm. Yeah, and we don't only see that kind of like poking fun in Isaiah, but Elijah does this too. And I've always laughed when he says, I think it's pretty blatant in Elijah's words. This was like NBA so, level trash talk. This is like <laughs> UFC pre-fight trash yeah. talk. Yeah. So when he's facing off against the prophets of Baal and it's this like test of, of Elijah's God and to show up and a test of the, um, what were, who were these people again? They were I prophets, know they of, Baal were prophets of Baal, but did we know their cultural origins? Oh, they were Israelites, but they were prophets <sighs> of Baal and Asherah. I don't and know. I didn't praying, realize they were Israelites. Yeah. They were part okay. of kind of the kingdom of King yeah. Ahab. And so they're praying for Baal and Asherah to show up to light up this. Right sacrifice and that was the test and Baal is just or Elijah, Elijah is just standing there he's talking trash he's like well maybe he's busy or maybe he's taking a nap or, or maybe he's <laughs> lost in thought or may maybe hey maybe he just needed to stop and go take a leak yes. and that's why he's not answering the phone right now yeah so you see not only Isaiah makes fun of this kind of idolatry creeping into people's lives where it was pretty blatant through graven images, but Elijah does that too. But too often we read these accounts and we laugh. Like we just think it's funny and I mean, it it's not anything that we until struggle it's you. with. Yeah, it's funny until it's you. The right. fact of the matter though is... It can easily be you. It's you. Yeah. It is oh, until it's like, it is you. Okay. I would like to say it can be you. All y'all listen to this. Y'all a bunch of idolaters. <laughs> <laughs> Dale is very humble in his in his own issues of adultery. <laughs> no, I know I'm one too. Then that's how I know you are one yeah. as well. 
and to be sure, we don't struggle with it in the same way, but Israel was simply living out a, the same weakness that we have within their own cultural construct. And so our cultural construct looks differently, but the weakness there is still kind of the same. And so we can identify with that struggle. And once we identify with that struggle, we kind of stop laughing at it because it's a lot more difficult to conquer than we thought it was. Right, because when you really look into these accounts a bit more and you you see what is it that they were hoping to gain from worshiping these graven images, we realize we can actually relate and connect to this a whole lot more than we thought before. Because really what they were after was a sense of security in their lives, a sense of independence, of prosperity and safety, uh, because they lived in incredibly uncertain times. And so they longed for these things. And when you realize those were the motives for why they were worshiping these graven images, we can actually connect a whole lot more with this sin of idolatry than we probably first realized. Yeah, and another thing too, growing up and hearing about, you know, the nation of Israel was worshiping these idols and that's why God sent the prophets and that's why God sent judgment on them. My thought was always that they had abandoned their faith, that they had stopped worshiping the God of Israel. They had stopped worshiping Yahweh and they had turned to other things. But what's interesting is that if you look at it a little bit more closely, they actually hadn't done that in a certain sense, at least to their own mind. In their own mind, they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they were just kind of adding to that faith. They were adding kind of these extra security measures. They were adding these other practices that were part of their culture and the culture around them uh, to that faith. But they wouldn't think that they were actually abandoning their faith. From God's perspective, they were, but from their own perspective, they weren't. And I think the perfect example of this is when the nation of Israel, it has a, a civil war and it's split into two separate kingdoms. And the nation of Judah was in the south and the nation of Israel was in the north. In the northern kingdom, they didn't have access to the temple anymore. But they still wanted to worship and they still wanted to bring sacrifices to their God, but they just couldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore because that was in the southern kingdom and they would have to go into enemy territory in order to do that. So what they did is they established two sites, one at the northern border of their kingdom and another one at the southern border of their kingdom. And they had these religious sites there where they established these golden calves that they would come to and they would worship and they would bring sacrifices to. But those golden calves weren't their own gods. What they were is they were representations of Yahweh. So to their mind, they were still worshiping Yahweh in a way that they best knew how in their new reality. It was just exactly opposite to the way that God had told them to worship him. And this was actually the same thing that they had done in the desert after they had been brought out of Egypt. And, you know, Moses went up on the mountain and he was there for a couple of weeks and they're like, dude, this guy's dead. He's not coming back. So, like, we need something to connect us to this God that brought us out of Egypt. And so they melted down all their gold and they created a golden calf. That wasn't a different God to them. That was the same God, but it was represented in this idol that they were giving sacrifices to. Right. It was their longing to have something in a tangible form so that way they could worship it, even though 
they still saw it as worshiping the Lord. Yeah, it was more tangible. It was more comfortable. It was the symbol that they, it was easier in a lot of ways that they could feel like they were doing something and seeing something and interacting with something that gave them peace and hope and security. And so when you look at it through that lens, you're like, wow, we're not okay, that we much can different. Really identify mm-hmm. with those kinds of weaknesses and those kinds of struggles. Right, because we're sitting in a very similar situation where we worship the God we do not see. I mean, Jesus came to the earth as a man, but in our day and age, we are not physically seeing him. And we are worshiping and following and being obedient to the Lord, but we don't actually physically see him. Yeah, and so we come up with different ways Mm -hmm. to make that more tangible, more comfortable for our cultural context. And so today on the podcast, what we would like to do is we would like to get practical about what those idols are in a really uncomfortable way. <laughs> and, we, and we would like to outline six modern idols that we as American Christians, we as American evangelicals tend to worship in the place of God. And really, as we do that, think that we are worshiping God while we're doing it. Yeah, and the first one we would like to bring up is the idol of wealth and prosperity. We worship wealth and prosperity. Mm -hmm. And the irony of the fact that we say that as we speak into expensive microphones Mm. in a nice home that we purchased, and I'm drinking carbonated water, that's essenced with the flavor of fruit that I bought in bulk at Costco. The irony of that is not really lost on us because by a lot of standards, we are wealthy and prosperous. And I would imagine a lot of people listening to this are also wealthy and prosperous. Hmm. And as you say that, I think it's also necessary to point out that it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to live in a state of prosperity. God doesn't call us to be poor in the financial sense of poor. And so you shouldn't feel guilty about the abundance that you've been blessed with just because we can look to other people who don't have that same abundance. It doesn't make you less Christian or less obedient to the call that Jesus has given us. Yeah, and that doesn't even mean that it's your idol. It does mean that it's a temptation, though, because mm, that opportunity yeah. is there. But certainly all throughout the Bible and all throughout history, there have been people of means who have been righteous and faithful. And so we don't want to discount that. But we do know from First Timothy 6.10, that tells us that the love of money, the love of prosperity, the love of wealth is the root of all different kinds of evil, particularly when you place your identity in that wealth and who you see yourself to be rises and falls on that wealth and prosperity. And so that's really when it becomes an idol and it will pull us away from the security and the abundance that we are meant to experience in Christ that isn't tied to our physical circumstances. Right. And we actually see this played out in a number of different ways and really different levels of the way that this happens within Christianity, American Christianity specifically. And 
there's no denying that churches and Christian organizations and missions agencies um, are in need of others giving to them. They're in need of people being generous with their finances. But most often that happens with people who have money. And we're not seeing that. Usually we're not seeing the um, these types of organizations being funded, I guess, for lack of better words, uh, by lower class and middle class people. So because of that, we can even see these organizations begin to even place favor on those who have more money and depend on those things within their organizations. And so even as an organization, you can become a lover of money. Um, You can even become someone who idolizes those who have money because they can then turn around and benefit you and your organization. And even as people who have money, we begin to idolize it too because we view it as something that can give us a leg up in our life. We view it as something that can give us opportunity of prosperity that without money, we wouldn't have those opportunities. Yeah. And I think on the flip side of that, when you think about whether it's churches, whether it's cause-based organizations, those are often funded by a very few amount of people. So they're like these important things that we want to do. We want to spread the mission of Jesus to the globe. We want to spread the message of Jesus to our communities. We want to give people clean water. We want to give people medicine. We want to eradicate poverty. These are all things that really we have the power and the resources to do, but it only takes money, right? And when you look at these organizations, a lot of them are doing quite well and they're funded and they're advancing. But when you think about even just like the local church, the local church and really a mission-based local church is often funded by a very select few. And the few that are supplying most of the funding oftentimes aren't even the most wealthy people within that community or within that church. They're just the people that are the most generous. They are sacrificially generous. And the fact of the matter is that if all of us were even moderately generous, then we would be able to do so much more. But because we idolize our own wealth and our own prosperity, we don't often exercise that level of generosity or even really any level of generosity. Like maybe you give a little bit, but it's not very much and we could do so much more. And what you're saying is really counter to what, well, just another angle of what I had said earlier. But I think what's important to know about what you said is we would have this ability and this capacity to do so much more if so many of us didn't idolize money personally. If we didn't idolize money, then we would be more willing to be generous with it. We would be more willing to give it away. We wouldn't have to grip tightly to it out of fear of there not being enough if it wasn't something that was an idol. If it wasn't something that we worshiped and we uh, thought it was the answer to all of our problems. Yeah, and even as you say that, I think about people's reticence to give to whether it be the church or a Christian organization because of what you described earlier about an organization's tendency to be Mm -hmm. greedy itself. Right. And there's something that Sky Jitani has called the evangelical industrial complex, where a lot of what American evangelicalism does 
through publishers, through conference organizers, is really to platform the voices of people who can put butts in seats, of people who can sell books. And really, when we do that, it becomes a numbers game. It becomes a money game. How much money can we get to flow into these coffers? And what do we need to say? What do we need to do in order to get that money to come in and to use those kind of marketing tactics? And when we do that, what we often end up doing is losing our ability to have a prophetic voice in the church have a prophetic voice in the world because it's not about what the right thing is. It's about saying the thing that will get the butts and the seats and the conference tickets sold and the books sold. And so that feeds into people's reticence to give. And so it kind of becomes this chicken and the egg thing. But the fact of the matter is that if you're listening to this, like we all need to exercise generosity and to really always be increasing that because it's not a natural thing yeah it's not natural to be generous it no. goes against your survival instinct it, it goes against your evolutionary tendencies mm. to protect yourself uh, because we have the idol of wealth and prosperity but if we can flip that then that's when we'll really be on mission and really be making a huge impact I think we don't see this as a parent in our own lives as Christians because we think if we're making money, it's because God is blessing us. And so we disguise it or we cover it. And it's not to say God's not blessing you, but we disguise it in this spiritual, um, biblical language that it doesn't require us to reflect on truly what is our heart and truly is this something that I am worshiping. But if I say, oh no, God is just blessing me with this. So I'm going to keep it and hold on to it. Then I'm worshiping God. I'm not worshiping money. So we have, we just have a way of kind of playing mind tricks in our own minds <laughs> to ourselves. So I think that's one of the ways that's pretty apparent in our lives that we can look a whole lot more like the Israelites who created these graven images, but we're saying, no, 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 but it's still God. I'm still worshiping God. And we do that with money by saying, well, God bless me with this. And so we end up actually worshiping that and not God. Oh, yeah. And that's a line you hear a lot from like prosperity preachers who are notoriously greedy. Well, I have this billion dollar home because, you know, what, God bless me. And if, if the money keeps flowing in, then what I'm doing must be blessed by God. And that's just terrible logic. <laughs> it's just it just doesn't work that way. It's not. And it's God can bless you with a million dollar home, but if you do not have a heart of generosity and you are wealthy, <laughs> then I would say you should probably reflect a little bit more eternally. And even if you don't have a million dollar home and you find yourself gripping tight to money and not wanting to let it go because you have to care for yourself or you have to hold tightly to what God has given you, then that also might be a sign that wealth and prosperity is an idol in your life. Yeah. 
So modern day idol number one is wealth and prosperity. Are you ready to get some letters on modern day idol number two? I'm ready. Send them all to Dale Chamberlain. (laughs) Modern day idol number two, nationalism and patriotism. And this has been a problem for American evangelicals for a long time, but I think we've really seen it rear its ugly head in more recent Mm. years. Yeah. And maybe that's not true. Maybe I'm just more aware of it now, like it's coming into my consciousness as I'm seeing current events unfold. And I feel like it's important to say from the outset, there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. Right. In fact, that's actually good for society. If you have a bunch of people in a nation who hate that nation. (laughs) That's a problem. That's no good. That's not. That's not good. You need people who love the nation because that's part of the social glue that keeps the whole thing together. So that's a good thing. However, when we make our national identity as important as our identity with Christ, that's where things get real wonky real fast. So when we have our identity as an American on the same level of our self-image schema as our identity in Christ, that's where things really get off kilter and we start to do some really strange things. Right, because we begin begin to mix our values as an American with our values as a Christian and you can't really tell the difference between what is it that makes you an American and what is it that makes you a Christian and you first and foremost identify as an American Christian, not just as a Christian. And that's when things begin to get pretty messy because you can't separate those two things and... Your identity should be and needs to be first and foremost as a Christian. So if for whatever reason you can no longer identify as an American or things shift in that way, you are still a Christian and that should really be all that you need in terms of how you truly identify yourself. Yeah, so when we get that messed up, it it pops up in a number of strange ways, but really all revolving around this idea that to be Christian is to be American and to be American is to be Christian. And I think within that framework, like the general American cultural values become quote unquote Christian values. And I think this is best personified in something that I recently saw where Zondervan Hmm. released this new Bible that I think they call it like the Patriot Bible. And it's like a translation of the Bible. But like in the opening pages of it are the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution right alongside the pages of Scripture. And that is like the epitome of like enmeshing two completely separate identities into one thing in a way that is just horribly detrimental to our spiritual formation. And even saying that those are of equal value in terms of the way that you are called to live your life. Being an American is not the central focus of your identity, and that's not what you're called to be. And that's what you see in Scripture. It talks about us being citizens of the kingdom of God before we are citizens of wherever we came from. Our identity as believers should unify us far greater than our identity to a country. And 
I had actually heard a pastor in Canada who had said it just really boggled his mind that as Americans, we had this issue of Christianity and patriotism being one and the same. And you can most easily see this identified with the fact that we hold it in high regard that an American flag is is in the church itself. And Canadians, this is crazy to them. They would never, ever think of having their flag inside of their church because they're two different things. They're not the same identity and they're not the same value in their life. They are proud to be Canadians, but they place a far greater value on their identity as a Christian. Yeah, and I think that's the case for Christians outside the U.S. around the world. When they hear about some of the things that go on here in America, it just make it gives them vertigo. It makes their head spin. But just another example, and I think I've shared this story on the podcast in previous episodes, but it was a while ago now. Uh, growing up in the church that I went to on the 4th of July weekend, we would have a patriotic service, and there would be like the red, white, and blue bunting inside the worship center, and we would actually sing like two or three uh, patriotic hymns, which are basically like battle hymns, which is basically like war propaganda. Like you get into like the third and fourth verse of My Country Tis of Thee, and I was like, wow, this is like... There's no other way to put it other than war propaganda. And uh, war propaganda has its place in the culture of a society, but that place is not within the walls of a church where we're singing these things congregationally. And so I found that very jarring. And that's kind of like the epitome of putting these two things together that should not be together. And why that's so damaging, I think, is, again, we lose our prophetic voice. Because when you equate being an American to being a Christian and being a Christian to being an American, you can't then criticize things that are going on in our culture. You can't be a prophetic voice to point people to a better way when the way of the culture is seen as the Christian way, even when there are moments when that way is actually antithetical to what God has taught us to do. And so what you end up doing is you end up defending things that Jesus hates because you think those are the Christian things, but they actually aren't the Christian things. They're actually just the American things that are within us. And we can't speak prophetically against those, even though we love our country, but to, to speak truth into those things, we lose that ability because we lose that sense of perspective because everything's enmeshed and you just, everything becomes out of focus. Yeah. And so that is our second American Idol. <laughs> That you can see creep into your life. Uh, The first, again, is uh, prosperity and wealth. And second is patriotism and nationalism. So the and we are on a roll at this point. Yeah, Dale's all fired up. So the, I'm sweating over here. <laughs> so the third idol that we want to talk about is safety and security. This is a huge part of our culture. And I wouldn't say it's only an American value that is placed really high on the list, but I think this is something that not all cultures share in terms of high value of safety and security. And I remember being really shocked by this fact when I was in my world missions class 
and they were kind of describing the difference between cultures and the way that we talk and the way that we relate and really some of our value systems. And one of those value systems for Americans that was not equally shared in terms of like the top five things you have to have is safety and security. And the professor went through how we see this shape out so clearly in our culture. And he pointed out in our classroom, like, look, on the wall, you have an exit plan just in case something were to go wrong. How do you exit this building properly and safely? That is very much a foreign idea when you go into other countries. Like, they don't have a prescribed exit plan if the building were to be lit on fire. And that is important to us, and it's not a bad value to have, but it is something that is really ingrained within us, and we can see it in so many different ways as Americans, not only by the exit map in the classroom, but, you know, in any building you go into, that is code within that building. You have to have some... Like it's some, law, like you yeah, have to you have, have it, yeah. to, because it's in a very important value to us. But also we see things that fall in line with safety and security, such as life insurance, health insurance, fire insurance, earthquake insurance, car insurance. Like you, the list goes. Your extended car warranty. Yeah. I've been meaning to tell you that someone called me about that. Yeah. We need to get our, exactly. to get our warranty extended. Exactly. But the list goes on and on and on. And again, these are not bad things because we have car insurance and we have homeowners insurance. Like these are good things to have. But they do point to the fact that in our culture, this is a huge value to us. And we then move that into our faith in such a way that we begin to expect God. And we even believe that he promises these same measures of safety and security in our life because it's so ingrained in us. But the truth is, God doesn't actually promise it in the way that we think of it. Uh, He promises safety and security in terms of our salvation, but not necessarily in terms of every nook and cranny of your life will be safe and secure. Yeah, and it isn't to say that safety and security is a bad thing. Like, we have locks on our door. We have insurance. I'm looking up. There's a carbon monoxide detector that's above my head that I assume works. I should probably test it after this now that I'm looking at it. <laughs> but but we have all of these things that will keep us safe to a certain extent, and those aren't bad things. Precautions aren't bad things. If you're an Enneagram 6, your love language is precautions. And so those are all good things. Where it becomes an idol is where we lose sight of the mission of Jesus because the mission of Jesus doesn't lead us to a place of safety and security. It leads us to a place of danger. Sometimes it leads us to a place of uncertainty, whether that's emotional uncertainty or financial uncertainty or even physical safety uncertainty. Um, if you're called to the mission field or you're called to certain things, there there are a lot of situations in which Jesus will call you to a place where your physical safety is compromised in a lot of ways. 
And so when we place safety and security and that feeling of nothing bad can happen to me, when we place that on a pedestal, that's when we can begin to really neuter our sense of mission in the world and render it inert because we'll only do the things that are safe. But a lot of times the things that are safe aren't the things that are going to make the biggest impact. Right. And we're less willing to step into those places of uncertainty and areas that might feel unsafe to us. And some really current examples could be in regards to stepping into a neighborhood that might be known as less than safe, even though you know they are people that are in need of salvation and in need of of encountering Jesus, but you might put in your mind, that is not a mission field for me because that puts me into a place that questions my safety or helping out a homeless community because you don't feel safe around them. And Jesus is calling us to places that we might not feel physically safe. I think of Paul. He was stone and driven out of city after city like he was not safe and when you say stoned he he didn't smoke weed like people threw rocks at him yes until they thought he was and he was put in prison like that in in our minds like i wouldn't think like that's a place of safety like oh yeah let me go to prison that feels safe and secure but this idea of Jesus calling you into places that you don't feel comfortable and that might actually risk your very real physical safety is not out of the question for Jesus. And it's not because he just wants to put you into a place that you're going to be left with hurt and pain, but because he cares so deeply for the lost. He cares so much for people to know him that on this side of eternity, you might be placed into a situation that you feel less than safe. And that's hard for us. That's hard for us as Americans. We don't want to be unsafe. And I think that even shows up in the way that we advocate for certain policies, whether that's with regard to refugees or immigrants. We think like, oh, there's refugees from the Middle East. Like, yeah, sure, there are a lot of people in need, but what if there are some terrorists in there? Or we think like, oh, yeah, immigrants... Uh, coming into this nation, like I'm sure a lot of them are looking for better opportunities, but what if there are some criminals? What if there are people who aren't going to pay their taxes and they're going to steal my jobs? And you said about the homeless, like they're probably all drug addicts anyways, and they they deserve that. And so why am I going to put myself in harm's way to help these people out? And all of those views are not the historic Christian views when it comes to these subsets of people. When you look across what the Bible says, when you look across what the church has done, we are outside our tradition on this one, and I think we are outside the heart of God. Not not only for the policy standpoint you have, but even just for the way we speak ill of people, mm, yeah, because we see absolutely. them as a threat rather than as someone who is in need of love and care and some kind of physical resource. So that's one that I think, I don't think that one creeps into our life so much. I think that one is just a heart shift for a lot of us. We need to be aware of it and aware of the difference of our culture and what God has called us to, because sometimes those things actually don't match up. I think this is one of those places. So we have now covered three 
American idols, as we're calling them. First, um, wealth and prosperity. Second, patriotism and nationalism. Third, safety and security. Do you want to introduce the fourth? Probably going to get some more letters about this one. The fourth one is family. Now, now, now. You behave over there. <laughs> yeah, I I had written a blog similar to this podcast we're doing. And I had received, I think it was a couple of people who did not agree with me specifically on this point of family. They had some persnickety comments. They I read did. Them. Yeah. They weren't fans of what I was saying. And family can become an idol because we can view family in such a way that we don't want anything else to come in and disrupt what we have in our family. We don't want to be generous to somebody else because that might mean your family receives a little less than they could have received. You don't want to give up your time. You don't want to give up your energy because it might take away from your family. And I want to be clear, family is important. And we have two sons that we are full believers that our role, our call is to raise these boys in the ways of the Lord. And they are our mission in the same way our neighbors are our mission. We are called to care for these children and it's a high calling. So we're not saying your family doesn't matter. We're not saying your family is not important, but we are saying you can turn your family into an idol that God never intended them to be because your children are first and foremost God's children. And he has entrusted you with them to love them and care for them and raise them. But at the end of the day, they are his. And you do not own them. <laughs> you are not the only one who can care for them well. And so, We're quickly learning you can't control them. Uh, no. <laughs> you can't. No matter how hard you try, you can't control them. And I think what you're speaking to is a particular vision for a nuclear family where there's a mom and a dad and 2.5 kids and a family dog and a white picket fence and you live in suburban America and nothing bad ever happens to you. And this kind of bleeds back into the nationalism, kind of bleeds back into the safety and security, kind of bleeds back into the wealth and prosperity. But really it's this particular vision of what family should be and really family that we should value is actually a little bit bigger than that. The family that we should value also includes caring for older generations. Family includes things like adoption. Family includes bringing people into your home, into your life, into your family who don't have a nuclear family of their own with their 2.5 kids and their family dog and their picket fence. It's about all of those things. But the thing about that is, is that for everything that you say yes to or everyone that you say yes to, mm. You have to say no to something else. And so as a family, if you're going to be generous, going back to the wealth and prosperity, then that means that you're going to have a little less disposable income to spend on your family and on your kids and whatever experiences you could have wanted for that. And bringing people in into your family and into your life means that your family is no longer this walled-off oasis. Your nuclear family is no, no longer this closed in thing that it's all you know about your world as a family 
and being on mission as a family may end up taking you and your kids to places that you wouldn't have wanted your kids to necessarily be like if you're just like in an ideal situation, whether that's a less than stellar school district or that's a less than dazzling youth group. But when you're not idolizing your family and not idolizing your kids, it's going to lead you into decisions that are going to look very different than that kind of suburban ideal of what you should be doing for your family. And this isn't to say that your family should not be a priority in your life. This isn't to say that your family should be second and third and fourth and fifth down on your list of of the way that you spend your time and and even the people you minister to because people in your family need to be ministered to as well. And I think one of the biggest pushbacks I had received on this comment was a very specific life situation where the husband was a pastor and was putting the church before the family. And so I do want to clarify (laughs) in those very specific situations. That guy was our next idol. Right. (laughs) That's what we call a teaser. Yeah. In very specific situations, you shouldn't be trading off idols, <laughs> the church for the family. Like they're not, they shouldn't be pit against each other. Uh, the family is important, but it shouldn't be so important that you are unwilling to minister to anyone else or unwilling to make sacrifices in any other way because you don't want to risk your family having anything less than what they could possibly have. Yeah, so now we've been through four idols, and I feel my self-confidence just lowering every time that we go through each one. We've been through wealth (laughs) and prosperity, nationalism and patriotism, safety and security, family, and our fifth American idol is career success and image. America has always been obsessed with success. We were built as a country that really lived by the motto of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and making it happen. Like you're going out, you're getting the money, you're, you're getting your land, you're building your house, your, your work ethic is unlike any other that you've ever met before because you want to be successful and you want to maintain your image of a person of success, of integrity, of hardworking. And those are not bad things. Those are not bad values to have in your life. But to place that above all else and to push forward to succeed in whatever that looks like, whether it's in your career or it's in your education or it's in relationships, whatever that ends up lending itself to, success has a way of pushing all other things out of your life that are equally important. Right. Yeah. And so it's a good thing to be a hard worker. I think it's super important, actually. I think like if you are a Christian in your workspace and you're known as the one who's the least hardworking, you make (laughs) Jesus look bad. Mm. And there's something good about having a vision for an organization, whether that's you're in the church and you have the vision for the mission of Jesus or you're just in another business and they're doing something good and you have vision for that and you want to work hard and you want that to succeed. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a huge difference. There's a world of difference between being a hard worker and being a ladder climber. 
being a hard worker is you're going to do everything you can to make this thing succeed. Being a ladder climber is you want to have that success. And it's even, you don't care who you step on to get there. You don't care who you have to badmouth. You don't care what you have to do to continue to climb that ladder. And I've seen it. I've seen people who are friends turn on one another because there's one opportunity and they know only one of them is going to get it. And the way to get it is to make the other person look bad. And they want to compromise integrity. They want to compromise a lot of these core value systems for the sake of getting to that next level in their idea of success. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that when you're a ladder climber, you see people as a means to an end. And so I might be having a conversation with you, but I'm always looking over your shoulder just in case somebody more important walks into the room or walks into my life. And as soon as that more important person comes or that more important opportunity comes, I will drop you like a hot potato. And I don't care because the most important thing to me is my image and my career success. And really you start to treat people like pieces of meat rather than people who are created in the image of God. And it's all around this idol of your own career success and your own image. And you even become disingenuine in the relationships you build because you're just building them for the sake of networking and you're putting them in your um, Rolodex for the sake of figuring out when you can call on them again because you know that they're going to serve you in such a way to move you further up in your uh, career path. And I've seen people do that to me in my role in the ministry that I work in because I was the assistant to the president of the organization. And a lot of the times people would become really nice to me and say very kind things to me. And I was thinking, wow, great. Like I would probably count this person as a friend. Like they're just very friendly with me. Um, and then you you just figure out they realized they could get to the president of the organization if they could build trust and confidence with me first. And it was just disingenuine. You realized very quickly, oh, you you actually don't care about me at all. And the fact that you continue to mispronounce my name is probably a really good sign of that. But you actually don't care about me. You really care about the fact that you're networking right now and I am just a stepping stone to get you to what you want. And that's so sneaky because like, The other side of that is like, it never hurts to have a lot of friends. You know what I mean? Like it never hurts to add value to a bunch of people's lives so that, you know, reciprocity. That's what being a friend is. is But when you're really their friend. But when you're really their friend. But when you're going into it saying, oh, I know what you do. I know what kind of influence you have. Or I know you're in a realm that I want to be in. So if I just kind of like cozy up next to you and pretend we're friends, my opportunity will come. And that's icky. It is. Like, that's not actually loving your neighbor at all. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the the measure of this would be to ask yourself whether or not you have friends in low places. Because mm. Jesus was a guy who had friends in low places. There's a song. He wasn't a networker. He I've was a servant. i friend in low places. I think it's a country song. Oh, okay. That's probably why it just... Whew, Straight over my head, didn't catch that one. Yeah, and as I'm playing the rest of the lyrics, it's the man's like drunk and talking about having friends in low places. So never mind. So we'll skip that one. I won't sing the song. (laughs) But anywho, we have one more American Idol. And this one kind of sneaked onto the list, but we feel like it's an important one uh, because it's fairly insidious. And this is the idol of 
romance. When it comes to romance, I think we've been sold a lie in a lot of ways. We're all just chasing that feeling. We are, and we're chasing the story that's played out in the romantic comedies. And I think it's my brother who first pointed this out to me. He said, "You know if." Most of those stories were to play out in real life. Like you'd probably call the cops. Restraining Like you'd think it would be so creepy. He's like, you females want to hold us to this standard. But if we were to really do that, you would be terrified of us and think we were like a creepy stalker. I feel like the difference is on that one is whether or not you're good looking. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Now, the the line is is thicker if you're good looking. (laughs) Maybe. But... We desire romance in our life. And even if you are no longer single, so a lot of the times this idea of romance is really played up when you're single and you're trying to find the one and you're praying like, Lord, who is it that you have for me? Of course, he's going to be great. Of course, he's going to be good looking. And you like build out this list that mixes between this romanticized idea of what a husband should be and really what God has for you. But you kind of spiritualize it a bit by praying for God to send you the one. The one. And you just want God to send you your Boaz. Just waiting for my Boaz. I don't want any of his friends. Slow as, Poaz, beat your ass. What is happening? I'm just waiting for my Boaz. Okay, I've never heard that one before. So we're going to keep moving on. Well, I've heard because I'm a Christian, and so that's what the Christians say. I'm sure that's what they say. So You'd be surprised how many of them. <laughs> it's unfortunate. <laughs> it sounds like it. So this idea of um, romance is not only for single people. We also see it play out when it comes to married people as well, because we long to keep that romance alive and... If the romance is gone, there must be something else gone. And we really, I think when we focus on that and that only, we make less of what God has called marriage to be. This partnership and a unification of two people where the two become one and and you get to carry out the mission that God has given you as a couple. Like there is a high calling that you get to step into when you're married. And by just longing to keep romance alive, you're making less of the covenant relationship that God designed marriage to be. I mean, when we look at scripture, we see Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Like there's some heavy imagery when it comes to marriage and it's not talking about romance. Like when we see that imagery, we don't see romance between Jesus and the church. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that'd be, that's, that I'm, makes I'm it weird. I'm not going to approach that one. I'm just going to let you keep going. Thank you. So that makes it weird. And there's just something so much deeper that God desires for us to have in our relationships and When we start wondering whether our romance is alive or it's dead, is he still sending me flowers and chocolates? Is he still surprising me and sweeping me off of my feet? I think we make less of the design of a man and woman coming together in marriage. And 
we make less of relationships between men and women, romantic relationships, <laughs> when all we want to do is look for the feeling and the romance. And I think this does tie back to the way that the Israelites had worshipped these graven images, but they still, in their minds, thought that they were worshipping God in the way that we look to romance to be this fulfillment of what God has for us and this fulfillment of why God has brought me the one. But really what we've done is we've just turned it into an idol. And obviously... A loving marriage is more than a cold commitment to the idea that I will never divorce you. Like, it's got to be more than that, maybe, because that's pretty. Well, there's love, absolutely. But there's affection there. Love and romance are not one and the same. That's true. I mean, but there is, I mean, there is romance. There should be, right? There should be affection. There should be a, a sense of warmth and those kinds of things. But when those kind of toppings to the ice cream sundae, become the meal itself that's where you really can get cattywampus and really start to question like well i thought this was the one but i'm chasing that feeling and i don't have that feeling so like maybe this wasn't the one maybe this isn't the right choice that i made maybe i married the wrong one and you can really start to spiral out and sabotage your relationship uh with your spouse uh, and have this existential crisis when really you don't need to. Really, all you're doing is idolizing that sense of romance. Yeah. And there are more idols that we can see creep into our lives than the six that we have listed. There yeah, but are we just don't have more. the will to go on. Like, I bet that you feel worse about yourself at the end of this podcast in the same way that we do. So we'll just stop here. We feel like this was this was enough bashing for one day. Right, because we'll never completely rid ourselves of temptation, um, really to place our trust and our identity in other things, anything other than Jesus himself. But we have to be on guard about these things and be willing to look into our lives and see in what ways can we probably relate to the Israelites far more than we thought and in what areas of our life have we built idols that need to be torn down? Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com.